morning we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, continuing Pastor Carr's series through Mark. Uh, we are going to be looking at the whole chapter, but we are not going to read the whole chapter in the beginning as we are going to read it in, in sections as we deal with it. We are going to uh, start with a word of prayer because I feel a desperate need for that right now. So let's pray. Father, you are uh, holy and an awesome God, and I confess before you that I'm not worthy this morning to bring your word. But I thank you for the belief that you have given me. I thank you that you are a God that that speaks and, and despite of your servants. Lord, and I thank you that this morning that you have chosen me. And Lord, we lay down this time before you. Lord, and we pray for you to speak powerfully and lovingly. And Lord, we pray that you will open our ears and help us to understand. And Lord, I confess before you that, that I have difficulty at time understanding. I have difficulty believing and having faith. But Lord, you have called me and you have made me your child. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for each of these people in here. Lord, we pray this morning for your word to be powerful in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, the message is entitled, What is Wrong with This Generation? We're going to look at a few things before diving in to the scripture. Um, I have been spending a good bit of time uh, studying things about culture. Um, one of the things that is very important in youth ministry, um, I have been doing uh, youth ministry for around 20 years or so, and I have gotten to speak to uh, many generations in doing that. Um, so it is very important in youth ministry to understand and to spend time studying the culture that you are preaching to, speaking to, because most of the time it is not the culture, it is not the generation that you are a part of. So I am very honest at this point, I don't understand a lot of what is going on with the teenagers that I am speaking to. I love them very much, and I am learning and I'm growing, but it just doesn't make sense to me in a lot of ways. But the truth is that there is a lot of good things that is going on in the culture that they are growing up in, in the world that they are growing up in, that a lot of us don't see and don't understand. So as I'm looking into information about generations and, and cultures, what I am finding is that a lot of people think that everything is bad about millennials. A lot of people, it, to be clear, millennials aren't the upcoming and current generation. They are the generation before. They are the generation that are already adults and, and living uh, and working in the world. But there is a new generation, and many uh, people call this generation Generation Z. 
or iGeneration because they have grown up with iDevices and they've never known a time in a world where those iDevices weren't an important part of the world and life. But, you know, it doesn't stop there either. There's a new generation after Generation Z or the iGeneration that we have no idea what it's going to be like, but it's going to be different. And one of the things that I'm learning is that each generation now is shorter because life is moving more quickly and faster. And one of the things that I understand is that with these moving quickly generations and them happening faster is that the next generations are only going to be five or six years. And so you're going to have brothers and sisters who completely don't understand each other because they're growing up in different worlds. (coughs) But we're looking at all generations. As I have been looking at this and studying this, many people think that the generations that are to come, each one is going to be worse than the next. And if you go back and you look at all of the generations, you can go back to the greatest generation, and there are a lot of good things about that generation. I've heard sermons about how the greatest generation is the greatest generation, and so we should all be more like the greatest generation. As I look through all these generations, I want to make it very clear that all of the generations have good things and they have bad things. In fact, if you look at through, through them all, and I will give you a few of them. There is a generation from the Depression era defined by the Depression and what life was like then. Then there was a generation from World War II. And it is defined by what happened in World War II and how they addressed it. Then post-war, Cold War, how to define, how to live life, how to focus on security, focus on family groups, family, uh, how to work together to, to make ourselves more comfortable and valuable. There's the baby boomers, because a lot of babies were born. Soon to come, Generation X. Generation X is um, very undefinable. Generation X is... uh, The way that they kind of do generations is they give an alphabet letter to to be a place marker for the generation until they figure out what it is going to be like. And then they give it a name. Generation X, they couldn't figure out what it was going to be like. 
And so they just left it as an X. But one of the things that defines Generation X is they don't fit in. And that's why they left it as Generation X. I am right at the end of Generation X. The next generation is the Millennial Generation. Pastor Carr was uh, born about a year after me. And most people would say we are in different generations because of where the generations fall. And then we have Generation Z, and we don't know what the next generation is going to be. I'm a little bit scared about it uh, because my kids will be growing up in that world. As we look at all these things, many articles say that the millennials are the worst generation. And then many articles try to explain why the millennials or the Gen Z isn't the worst generation. But what can be said about all is that all generations have good things and bad things. In college, I spent most of my time uh, outside of class studying at the Waffle House. The reason that I spent most of my time studying at the Waffle House is because I could go to the Waffle House and buy a cup of coffee for a dollar three and stay there all night long studying. And I would usually take one or two friends. And this uh, particular night, I uh, went with one of my friends, Dan. Dan was... Um, He was a Baptist, and so we called him Baptist Dan. Um, And he was one of the few Baptists at the Presbyterian school, but he was a great, dear friend of mine. So me and Baptist Dan were at Waffle House studying, and I am working on my senior integration paper. Senior integration paper is kind of like a thesis, but it's supposed to integrate everything that you've been studying while you are at the school. And so I am working on that, and I am a Bible major with a youth ministry minor. And so I am studying how to minister to the postmodern generation. And we get uh, into talking about that, me and Dan, and discover that he also is uh, just a couple years younger than I am. And so we start talking about what Things are different and what's important. And we discovered that many of our our key important factors are significantly different. And so I came to the conclusion that I have to spend a lot of time studying and learning about these people whom I will be ministering to. So as we enter into this text what's wrong with this generation we are not looking at the millennial generation we are not looking at generation z we are looking at what is wrong with all of the generations because there is a very key important factor that we are all missing and this uh, passage in mark 8 points it out and the the verse that we read in our confession is even more specific, where it says, Who do you say that I am? It says, you are, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So as we look through and we understand, we will see that what is wrong with us cannot be revealed simply through us, but it must be revealed to us by the Father. So let's start by looking into Mark chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with, a bre- with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven basketfuls. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with with his disciples and went to went to the district of Dalmanutha. So the first question as we're looking at what is wrong with this generation is we're looking at what is wrong with the thinking of the crowd. Here in the first part of chapter 8 we find Jesus feeding another large crowd and again with not very much food. It is important to point out that this is a different feeding of a lot of people than was the feeding of the 5,000. It is similar in many ways, but some of the specific details are different. This crowd, Jesus points out, has been with him now for three days. And they have come to hear Jesus teach and are likely there. Because many want to see the signs. They want to see the miracles and probably experience them for themselves. And Jesus clearly states to the disciples, I have compassion on the crowd. He then has to reason with his disciples why it is good and right to take care of this crowd. And to show them love by providing for their needs. And his disciples question him. Question him about how he is going to feed so many people with so little food. As if the disciples had never seen such a great miracle before. Then Jesus blesses the food. And he feeds the 4,000, and all ate, and were satisfied. And then the disciples took up 
seven basketfuls of food. And Jesus sent the crowd away. So this crowd, they were, he, they were there to hear from Jesus, which is a good thing. And they believed that Jesus was able to heal. Also a good thing. But I would suggest this morning that, the, that the, this crowd didn't yet have a full grasp of who Jesus really was. They weren't in full understanding that this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. They believed in as much as, as they got, as they could see. They saw Jesus was a, a good thing. He was able to, to provide. He was able to do some pretty cool miracles. And they believed in as much as they knew. They stayed, for, stayed and listened to him for three days to see what this Jesus was about. But they probably weren't there completely in their understanding. How do I know this to be true? How do I know that they didn't quite get it? Jesus has compassion on them and he feeds them. But then Jesus sends them away. And they went. They went away. Later, he's going to call the crowd back together and try to explain to them how important it is that if you are a follower, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you will follow him. But not yet. Next, we're going to move into what's wrong with the Pharisees. So first we looked at the crowd, what was wrong with their thinking. Now we're going to look at what is wrong with the Pharisees' thinking. The Pharisees just simply don't believe So let's look at verses 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, And went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. The disciples. And they had only one loaf with them. In the boat. And he cautioned them saying. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another. The fact that they had no bread. And Jesus aware of this said to them. Why are you discussing the fact. That you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The Pharisees come to Jesus in complete unbelief. In fact, 
R.C. Sproul suggests that the Pharisees believe that Jesus has been forming, been performing works by the power of Satan rather than from God. Therefore, the Pharisees come and they wanted to know how to judge the situation. They wanted a conclusive sign. Are you the son of God? Are you who you say you are? Or are you not? So basically they come and say, Jesus, prove it. Prove to us who you are. And a sign would settle in their eyes the matter once and for all. The crowd believed what they knew. The Pharisees, they say, I don't believe it. It's not true. You have to prove to us that you are the Son of God. We have the Pharisees questioning Jesus once again. They've been doing this over and over again. And here Jesus finds himself exasperated with this kind of questioning. With this kind of continual unbelief. In the first section, we could see Jesus' compassion for the people because they were in need. Here we see that Jesus, in dealing with the Pharisees, he is heartbroken because of, and sad because of their unbelief. These are people that just simply refuse to believe. And it makes Jesus sad because he really does love people. Both places show us in different ways that Jesus loves deeply. But in his broken sadness, Jesus responds to the Pharisees, there will be no sign. Why? Because the sign isn't going to work. They're so convinced in their unbelief. They're so determined in their unbelief that they're not really wanting a sign. What they're really wanting is something to nail against him and put against him to say, you aren't who you say you are. Next, Jesus and the disciples get back in the boat and they go away from the Pharisees. The text tells us that they, the disciples, had forgotten the bread. So Jesus takes this as a teaching opportunity. And this teaching opportunity seems a little bit odd and confuses the disciples. Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And this leaven is related to the bread and also the, the situation that, that they just had with the Pharisees, with the questioning. With the leaven, a little leaven goes a long way. And what he is saying is that the leaven... If it enters into your thinking, if, if their unbelief enters into your thinking, then it's going to have a tremendously bad effect. One commentator says that there's, because he refers to the Pharisees and Herod, there's two different kinds of unbeliefs that the disciples are, are needing, to, uh, needing to resist. The first, the leaven of the Pharisees. He says that it is referring to a hypocrisy, which would be not likely, which would be not like believing 
not likely believing, but then following the rules. So the Pharisees, they didn't believe, but they thought it was really important to follow the traditions and all of the laws and all of the rules. The second, Herod. A procrastinating unbelief. A belief that goes against conscience. It's kind of like believing a little bit, understanding a little bit, but then acting as if you do not believe. So Jesus is likely referring to simply dealing with the spreading unbelief. But there's these two different ways. Believing, but acting like you don't believe. And not believing, but acting as if you do believe and following all of the things that you think that you have to do. So this question actually points out a flaw in the disciples' own thinking. Because with Jesus' response, the disciples are simply confused. The disciples aren't quite getting it yet. They're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We were talking about bread. So what is wrong with the disciples' thinking? Starting with verse 22. And they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Here in this section, we see the faith of the blind man. The blind man and the people that brought him, they have faith and Jesus heals them. He first spits on his hand and then he puts his hand on the blind man's eyes and he says, do you see anything? He says, I see people walking or I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus laid his hands on his eyes one more time, and they were open. So the first question, why did Jesus have to touch his eyes two times? Did Jesus really need two times in order to heal the blind man? Not likely. Absolutely no. Jesus is able to do many miracles but this miracle isn't just about the blind man. The blind man has faith, and Jesus can heal him. But the disciples need a little bit more. The disciples know who Jesus is. They have been his followers from the beginning of his ministry, and they love him. They're, they're best friends with Jesus. And they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They believe that Jesus is the son of God, sort of. Their faith is like 
this blind man's declaration. I see people, but they look like trees walking. The disciples believe in Jesus, but it's a little bit fuzzy to them. It's a little bit blurry, a little bit unclear. So this brings us to our last section. Foundation text. The turning point of this story and the turning point really of Mark. Starting with verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And I told him John the Baptist. And others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? This is what this entire passage has been leading up to. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell to tell no one about him. So Jesus here clearly lays out what has to happen, which is the good news. Jesus, Peter has this confession. He confesses, you are the Christ. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to go into more detail, teaching them exactly what they need to know. And he began to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Here Jesus puts it all together. What's wrong with this generation is the same as that, that is wrong with that generation. It is ultimately that we really don't fully believe. We don't fully get it. We don't understand who this Jesus really is. The crowd understands just a little bit. And they know that he is good. The Pharisees completely, they just don't believe. They're not going to have any of it. And the disciples, they've been with him. They know him. They've walked with him. But their belief even is a little bit fuzzy. So Jesus has to teach them more. We see this clearly that they're still not quite there because Peter tries to rebuke Jesus 
as he's going on and telling him. And Jesus stops him abruptly. Jesus said that these things must happen. And friend, these things are what we must believe to be followers of Christ. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. We must believe that Jesus suffered many things and that he was rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He was crucified. And then three days he rose again. We must believe these things to be followers of Christ. And then Jesus gathers them all back together. He gathers the crowd back together with the disciples. And he teaches them more. He says, if you are to be a disciple, if you are to be a follower of Jesus, then you must be willing to give up. To give up your own self. To give up your own unbelief. And follow Jesus. For whomever is ashamed of Jesus in this generation will also be ashamed when it comes to glory. So this morning, what are we to do? This morning, this is a coming back to the challenge of the gospel. It's the simple gospel, but it is also challenging for us to fully grasp it. So we're brought back to this gospel message. All of us have the tendency to think this generation or our generation is better than another generation. Or maybe we think that our generation is the worst and wish we had it like another generation. We think our way of doing things is better than theirs or their way is better than ours. But the truth is, is that there's all, all the generations have a lot right and all of them have a lot wrong. But when you all, when they're all brought down to their very basics, what they are is people, sinful people trying to figure out how to make it in this world, how to find answers for what the, the previous problems were. They're trying to figure out how to do life. In some of these generations, it's a very individualistic thing. Nobody can help me. i got to figure it out on my own. And then some generations are very convinced we have to do this together. We need each other to make it through, to walk through this life. And so you, you bind together with this group or with this family. And it becomes essential and important. But what we find here is that what is missing is that we're trying to figure out and figure out how to do it without God. In a cultural speaking, all these cultures are trying to figure out how to make it through life on our own. The problem is we have a lack of faith or we don't fully understand yet. We're not quite there. Maybe it's like, In Matthew, where it simply just hasn't been revealed to us completely. 
Some of you may know that you don't believe. Others may be struggling with what exactly is it that you are supposed to believe. Or you're trying to understand or you're trying to know what to believe. Romans 10.9 tells us that if we confess with our mouth and we believe that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So I want to remind you this morning, even the disciples had a little fuzzy thinking. And even though they have believed for a long time, many of us also have believed for a long time. And we understand a lot of things. But there's a possibility that some of those things were wrong on. There's a possibility that we need to come to more of an understanding. Others are just coming to understanding. And God is still working. My challenge to all of us this morning, whether you've known God since you were a little child, whether you are a little child, or whether you are just coming to an understanding or you're even asking questions, what we can do together, what I challenge us all, including myself, is to keep learning together. Keep reading, keep praying, keep growing And God will reveal more things to us. This Christian life is a a growing process. And we need to continually be taught. We need to follow Jesus. And we can only do that by learning who this Jesus is. Let's close in prayer. Holy Father, you are awesome. Lord, and... And we don't fully understand. Lord, we pray that you will continually teach us. Lord, that you will soften our hearts, Lord, and help us to continue to grow. But Lord, let us be certain of what you say that we must believe. Lord, and help us to believe that and live our lives by it and share with others. Lord, we pray for your spirit to always be with us so that we may know and we may love you continually. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand in response.